This is the Visible Hand, Special Job Market Edition. My name is Jordi Blanes Vidal. My guest today is Alex Belgio, a postdoctoral researcher and job market candidate at Berkeley University. Today we are going to talk about her paper, Simple Actions, Complex Habits, Lessons from Hospital Hand Hygiene. Alex, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. So Alex, I want to start with a discussion about why we should study our routine behaviors in organizations such as hospitals. So your, your paper is about a routine behavior that at first sight seems like really simple, which is washing your hands. It will seem that something that is observable, that has a relatively low cost, should be quite easy for organizations, you know, to encourage, to incentivize, to enforce. Why is it that organizations find it difficult to encourage this type of behaviors? That is, why is it that there is a problem in getting people to wash their hands? Yeah. So first of all, routine behaviors are prevalent in all kinds of organizations. You can think about a manufacturing plant or an aviation industry when you have to do a pre-flight check of a plane. Um, and in healthcare, they can have really important health and financial costs to hospitals if providers are not performing these routine tasks as they should be. So with hand hygiene in particular, uh, the concern with providers and nurses not washing their hands is that it's going to result in healthcare-associated infections. And these affect millions of patients, almost 100,000 people die each year in the U.S. alone, and it costs somewhere on the order of 30 to $40 billion each year in the U.S. And hand hygiene is, a, like you said, a really easy task. It's one of the best tools that we have to prevent these, these infections. And I think part of the problem, uh, so there's, I guess, a couple pieces in here. So the first is measurement. So you mentioned it's observable. In principle, uh, hand washing is observable. You can see whether people do it or not. But in practice, it's actually often very difficult to get data on this hand washing behavior. So what they do, what hospitals typically do is they have someone say standing with a clipboard, um, checking off whether people are washing their hands each time they enter and exit a patient room. And that's problem, that type of measurement is problematic for several reasons. First of all, you could have observer bias on your, it's a coworker who's marking basically whether their, their coworkers are performing well or not. And also it actually changes people's behavior. So if they know that they're being watched, then they will actually wash their hands more than if they um, say didn't know that they're being observed or if uh, during times when they're not observed. We can talk more about the data when we get there. I use a nice data set that tries to get around this, this problem of having actual observers. But I think in general, going back to why hospitals want to motivate this, so they want people to wash their hands to prevent these hospital-acquired conditions. But it actually turns out to be quite difficult. So even though it is a really simple task, people in the hospital have to do it a lot. So in my data, I find that um, the average person has to wash their hands about 70 times over the course of a 12-hour shift. So it's not enough for them to say wash their hands um, infrequently. It's something that they have to repeatedly do. And so I think trying to keep up this consistent routine behavior, it's difficult to incentivize in that if you want to incentivize 100% compliance, you could do that and say you're going to be fired if you don't wash your hands every time. It's difficult to enforce, difficult to do. And it's also something that hospitals may not want to use financial incentives for. Um, and so there's several concerns in the literature with financial incentives. They could crowd out intrinsic motivation. So if, say, providers want to wash their hands because it's the right thing to do, 
then once you start paying them or penalizing them for not washing, they actually might, um, that could crowd out the intrinsic motivation. There's also concerns with financial incentives that it could crowd out performance on other tasks. So hand hygiene is nice that it's observable, but you don't, it's not the most important thing that all these people are doing. And so you don't want to focus all of your attention on incentivizing hand hygiene and crowding out uh, behavior on other tasks. And then finally, it could also just change the way that that workers think about these and uh, about the cost benefit trade-off. So if you now turn this into sort of a transactional relationship, that really highlights the fact that you're paying me to do this. And now I make a cost benefit trade-off of whether it's worth it instead of just sort of giving my, my best effort. And so anecdotally talking to hospital administrators, there seems to be a sense that they don't want this um, to be a punishment. They don't want to have this tied to financial incentives. They just want to try to encourage people to do the right thing. And that sort of implies uh, once we move out of this realm of financial incentives, uh, that we need some different tools to try to motivate behavior. And that's where I see this paper as fitting in and trying to understand, better understand individual behavior and how organizations can try to motivate these routine tasks. I, I want to comment a bit narrowly on one specific thing that you said, which I thought is interesting, but probably will become more interesting as we talk further. Uh, you said the crowding out that financial incentives can have on other types of behavior. One way to think about this crowding out is in terms of the multitasking model of Holmstrom and Milgram, where the idea is that having financial incentives on one of the dimensions of effort makes the workers engage in less effort on the other dimension because the marginal cost of effort has increased. So it would be great to have some way of getting the other task to increasing level without increasing effort, which would imply that the marginal cost of effort does not increase, which doesn't crowd out the compliance or if you want like a, the delivery on the other task. This is kind of the direction in which you are going because uh, your paper is about uh, the power of habit. That is how habits can make these individuals engage in the behavior of such as washing your hands at relatively or, or no effort. Can you describe how habit can help maintain this, uh, this uh, type of behavior? And perhaps more specifically, this, the, the type of model of habit that you have in mind in this paper? Sure. So drawing from the psychology literature, what we've learned about habits from, from that is that they're automatic and cue-based. So the way to think about a habit is as you repeatedly, as you interact with uh, cues in the environment, a cue triggers you to do an action and that's your habit. So as I'm saying in this case with hospitals, as I've walked into this room a bunch of times, I automatically reach out and use the sanitizer dispenser when I walk into this room that I've been to a hundred times and use this dispenser a hundred times. And so this is an automatic response to a cue and it's not, it doesn't require mental resources. This is something that you just do without thinking. So you can think about this in your own life. For example, commuting to work is something that you're often not thinking about. I need to turn this 
on this street and then I'm going to turn here. You just kind of go there and all of a sudden you're at your office. Or for me, for example, when I sit down at my computer, I always pull up my email and check it as the first thing I do. It's not that I'm really choosing to do that each time. It's that it's just, it's a habit. It's what I automatically do when I'm faced with this situation. And so this can be really powerful because it, it requires less mental effort than trying to do something more directly. So say if I don't have habits for hand washing, every time I walk into a patient room, I have to now remember to wash. And that's going to be cognitively taxing on me to try to remember this and the say 70 times I have to do it over the course of a shift. And so that's where the power of habit comes in is that with these automatic cue-based habits, if you can encourage people to build habit, they're going to do this automatically without thinking about it. And like you said, this can free up the mental resources to be able to focus on more cognitive, uh, cognitively challenging tasks. So is then the objective of your paper to show that a model of cue-based habit uh, accurately describes the way that people behave? Is that the objective here? Yeah, that's the objective. So I find, um, I show you some empirical evidence that's consistent with these automatic cue-based habits. So first, this piece on automaticity that uh, I'll show you, I'll, we can talk later about the, uh, the results here, but the idea is that if you benefit from this automatic habit, then your habit is not using cognitive resources. So it's not going to be affected by other taxes on your cognitive load, like fatigue, for example. Um, on the other hand, the, the types of habits you have can be shocked by different, uh, different changes to your routines. And so thinking about these different types of shocks, I can show evidence that's consistent with this automaticity of habit. And then the second piece of the paper, I show that um, habits are going to be consistent with uh, cue-based habit in that um, habits seem to form in response to particular cues. So one thing that, because I am an economist that studies organizations, I am a, always thinking, not necessarily successfully, but always think about what the frontier is in, in empirical research here. Uh, that is we by now probably understand incentives quite well. There are other issues that people think that are uh, important in organizations and that, you know, we don't have the data or the settings to adequately measure. Now, routines in organizations was one of these subtopics or, or fields or, you know, uh, questions. And I always dismissed routines in organizations as something that, yes, in an ideal world, will of course be uh, great to study, but in practice, how is it that you are going to study that thing? So I was very surprised to find out that you actually have a data set uh, that allows you to study uh, in a very rich way this type of routine behavior. Can you describe, I mean, you have already referred to it, but can you describe in a little bit more detail where does your data come from and what it consists of and so on? Sure. So the data I use uses an electronic monitoring technology in order to track providers and nurses and all other hospital staff as they walk in and out of patient rooms. And hospital guidelines require them to wash their hands every time they enter and exit a patient room. So what this location tracking system does is it actually picks up when people walk in and out of a room. And then it monitors as well whether they use a soap or sanitizer dispenser within some pre-specified time, like 30 seconds of room entry and exit. So this creates a really nice um, objective, automatically recorded high-frequency measure of compliance with hospital hand hygiene guidelines. Thinking about these guidelines, it's obviously 
good to have a rule that is easy to understand every time that you enter a room without any space for creative interpretation of the rule. But in practice, I wonder whether the nurses or doctors in the setting that you study really regard as this rule as being completely rigid. For instance, imagine that I enter a room that is empty just to pick up some scissors. Maybe I may wonder, well, the rule is there, but clearly having to wash my hands to stay in the room for 10 seconds to pick up some scissors will not be faithful to the spirit of the rule, even if it will be following the letter of the rule. So is it 100% compliance that we should really expect here? Or maybe the optimal level of compliance will be something lower, maybe 90% or something like that? That's a great question. So first of all, I wish I had some data on what people are actually doing in the rooms. Unfortunately, I can't observe that. So the hospital guidelines do say 100%. Is that right? Probably not. There's certainly going to be cases like you mentioned, or even something more extreme, for example, considering a patient who's coding and you need to run in, it's an emergency. It's probably not medically right to wash your hands in that moment and delay um, a potentially life-saving intervention. So 80% compliance is a number that I've heard as a potential target. There's different numbers thrown out there. I think the the key thing to note in this setting is that in practice, most people are very far below any of these kind of discussed thresholds of the, the right level of compliance. So I find in my data, the median person has about 60% compliance. Um, and these are pretty advanced hospitals who have elected to install this technology. In other studies across the world, compliance is typically found to be closer to 40 or 50%. So no matter what kind of realistic threshold, Uh, we want to think about in terms of the health benefits, people are typically much lower than those those levels that that we'd hope for. So one thing to say here is that the data that you have will seem like the ideal candidate for the big brother kind of monitoring behavior that is associated with financial incentives. I don't want to reopen that debate. You have already discussed why, you know, maybe they are not ideal or uh, desirable in this setting, but this is another question definitely at least for the hospitals that you that you measure, of having a clipboard, a worker with a clipboard anymore. That is, this is a setting in which a compliance can be measured very precisely. Yeah, that's exactly right. So the, the data is also incredibly rich in that it has, as you mentioned it, millions of hand-washing opportunities, that is, people going in and out of a room, but it also has a very large number of individuals. This is something that you regard as quite important, no? in that you can estimate these effects uh, that you will that we will discuss later quite precisely. Yeah, that's exactly right. So I have a lot of data, a lot of heterogeneity across people and settings, and this is going to be the key uh, pieces of evidence that I use to support automatic cue-based habits. So the model of an automatic cue-based habit as you describe it, in some sense, has to be consistent with features of the data that are not consistent with other models. And therefore, you obviously, we cannot write every single model uh, of what people do. You know, you write one model that is the, the most basic one and then discuss other alternatives more like a, more subjectively, less formally. But uh, the 
the one that you set up, the natural to set up as an alternative is simply a, a model of behavior in which there is a cost and a benefit, but there is no habit. Can you describe, you know, how this very simple model works and what would be, you know, the basic prediction of this model without habits? Sure. So in the basic model without habits, think of what a provider is doing as they're walking into a patient room and they're deciding whether to pay attention to hand washing. So I'm considering in this, uh, in this simple model, I'm going to abstract from say like a physical cost of effort here. And I'm just going to think about this all as attention costs. Um, and so as you, the hard thing about washing every time is actually remembering to do it. So there's going to be some benefit to hand washing in this particular opportunity. So some health benefits, or maybe even capturing as well, like a reputation. You don't want someone to see you uh, not wash. And then there's also going to be a cost of paying attention. And this is going to be dependent on the other, other drains on your attention that you have at your time at the time. So for example, things like fatigue, could make it harder to remember to wash your hands. And so people are gonna optimally trade off the costs and benefits of washing um, to choose their optimal attention level. So say I'm gonna pay attention 50% of the time in situations like this. So when I walk into a room, then it's a stochastic whether or not I actually wash based on that percentage that I've chosen. So you describe it as the cost being a cost of paying attention, but formally in the model, if we were to think of this as a physical cost of effort, it would kind of be the same in terms of the algebra of the model, right? Like yes, just the interpretation, the interpretation of the letter is a different one, but uh, but yes, you know, some marginal cost of effort, some interior solution where those who have a lower marginal cost engage in higher level of the behavior, which in this case is washing their hands. That's right. Okay. So against this, you have a model of habits. Uh, how does that work? So the way to think about habits in this setting uh, with automatic cue-based habits is in like a dual system process. So um, if you want to think about this in the system one, system two framework, your habits are system one. Uh, these are going to be your automatic response to a cue. So as I'm walking around in the world, I'm faced with cues and these are going to cause me to perform an action automatically out of habit. So this is not a cognitive process. This is just what I do. Um, and the way these habits are formed is by repeatedly pairing the cue with an action in the past. So again, in this example of walking into a patient room, if I've walked into this room a hundred times and I always just reach out and grab the sanitizer, then uh, that's an automatic behavior. I'm automatically going to do it out of habit. The other way to wash your hands is by paying attention. Um, and so here I think it is where the, this difference between whether it's a physical cost of washing versus an attentive cost is going to kind of matter in distinguishing habits from more deliberate action. But in the system two process, I actually choose how I'm going to remember to wash and that's going to require some costly attention. And so now the trade-off that people are making when they have some level of habit is how much attention they want to pay to hand washing, conditional on now the costs and benefits like before, but also their level of habit where now um, this habit lets them do it automatically. So as they have more habit, they can pay less attention to hand washing. So I, if I automatically walk into a room and, and I wash my hands each time without having to think about it, 
then I don't need to pay attention to say monitor my behavior and see whether I've washed out of habit and if not correct my behavior. So you can think about this in other types of in the settings of bad habits, for example, if you have a bad habit, you have to sort of pay attention to what you're doing in order to try to stop yourself from doing it. So in this case, not washing your hands is a bad habit. You have to pay attention with your costly attentive system in order to correct your behavior and wash your hands. So we have a standard model, cost and benefit, and a decision, which in this case is to pay attention with a convex cost of effort. And then the model of habits will be an augmentation of that standard model because the decision to pay attention does not disappear. It's just, it's a, it's in this case complemented with the fact that sometimes you don't have to pay attention because the habit takes you there. This also implies that if you already have the habit of washing your hands, there are two benefits. Number one, you do more of the behavior of washing your hands. Number two, you are saving on the cognitive cost of having to remember it, which maybe allows you to do other things. This is not obviously in the model, but maybe you if there was some other task that you can improve or for your, if you had some welfare in the model, that would be better for you. Yeah, that's exactly right. Okay. So you have a set of predictions that this Q-based model habit gives you and that you pair with patterns that you find in the data uh, that, as you described, it comes from this company that was uh, monitoring behavior in hospitals. What is the first prediction from this uh, model of habits? And that, that, that you have and, and the associated fact. So the first prediction of the model is as we talked about that through this attentive channel, if you have other drains on your attention, those are going to make it costlier to pay attention to um, hand washing. So as you increase the level of distraction, say through, for example, fatigue could make it harder to pay attention to hand washing, that's going to lower your compliance. So th this is a prediction we, I was mentioning earlier that the model of habits in some sense has two legs, the habit plus the element that comes from the conscious decision. This is a prediction that comes from the conscious decision part because the existence of fatigue is the one that is increasing the marginal cost of effort of paying attention. And this is the channel through which compliance is coming down. Is that, is that correct? That's exactly right. And is this something that you find in the data? Yes. So I look at three different proxies for fatigue in the data. The first is uh, fatigue over the course of the shift. And so this has been documented in past work that over the course of say a 12 hour shift, compliance falls substantially. Um, so I replicate that in my data. And I also look at two other sources of fatigue. The first being compared in a comparison of the day shift versus the night shift, assuming that fatigue is higher if you're working overnight. Um, I also find that compliance is lower on the night shift compared to the day. And then the third measure of fatigue is whether uh, you work consecutive days. So you can think of if you're working a couple of days a week, which is a standard in a hospital, um, those days can either be grouped together or you could have a break in between. And so what I find is that compliance is lower on a shift that's worked uh, the day after another shift, as opposed to, say, having a buffer of uh, at least a day between. So just to be clear, being a little bit pedantic about the actual regression that you run, you have a data set of hand washing opportunities where a hand washing opportunity belongs to a certain individual on a certain day. Hmm? So then you are going to control for the individual fixed effects because some people are inherently better or worse. Maybe they work longer hours or 
shorter hour, you, you want to account for all this. You are going to control for the actual time, Tuesday, 13th of November, 8 to 9 in the evening or, or whatever, to, you know, maybe it is a day that there was some type of like massive thing going on in the hospital and everybody got distracted or something like that. And then you are comparing individuals relative to themselves that are working at the person at the same time. And some of them are at the beginning of their shift, others are at the end of the shift. And you find the ones at the end of the shift wash their hands less. They are more tired. They cannot pay attention so much. Therefore, compliance decreases with fatigue, as you are mentioning. And then you do the same for the other two proxies that you were mentioning earlier. Yep, that's exactly right. Okay, so prediction and fact number two, what are they? So the second prediction is that is thinking instead of this cognitive system for handwashing, we can think about the habit system. And in, what are shocks to the habit system? Those are things that are going to change your habit level. So we've talked about this cue-based habit, that the cues are what matters and drive your habitual behavior. So you can think of, say, a change in physical location as a shock to your habit in that you're now changing the cues. So the way I look at this in the data are by using float days. So float days are a, a pretty typical thing in a, in a hospital where you usually work in one department, but for some reason they need you to cover a shift in a different department. So now you're going to switch to a new location where presumably you don't have the same type of habits that you do in your, in your regular situation. The second type of shock I look at to habit is time off work. So if you think of habits as decaying over time, so say if you don't wash as you take a vacation, you're not in the hospital practicing this routine task, that can lower your habit. And so the second shock I'm going to look at in the data is whether uh, what happens when people come back from a break from work. And so these two uh, different shocks to habit, the model predicts that both of these, as you lower um, your habit, should also lower compliance. One comparison that comes to mind, you were mentioning earlier, bad habits, which will be like not washing your hands. But one comparison that comes to mind is in terms of what you have for breakfast. Like if you stay at home, it is relatively easy to not have really unhealthy things for breakfast and ha have, I don't know, Weetabix every day. Um, but the moment that you change the environment, it becomes harder, you know, to hold on the urge to have something, I don't know, like pancakes or, or something that is much more unhealthy. That will be the equivalent of the flow days in, in your case. That is, the washing opportunities are there because the uh, rooms are very similar rooms, but they are not the exact same rooms in which these doctors and nurses are supposed to come every day. And that eliminates these cues that uh, lead to a decrease in compliance. Yep, that's exactly right. So is this, again, something that you find in the data? That is, do you find individuals that typically work in some areas, but then some days work somewhere else and, and, and therefore allow you to study this? Yep. So I, they're pretty rare. Both of these are pretty rare events in the data, sort of by definition, because we're talking about, say, breaks in routines. But given the large amount of data I have, I still have um, on the order of tens of thousands of observations of each of these rare events. And I do find that on these days, say when people switch to a different com department, compliance is lower by about three percentage points. And similarly, on days when people come back from a long vacation, say something like two, three weeks, 
um, their compliance is lower than when they, they left by about one and a half percentage points. So I guess that an alternative in terms of interpreting these comparative statics, if you want, that does not rely on these habits is that for whatever reason, the costs have increased. That is, if I am in a unfamiliar environment, I have to pay more attention to remembering because other things are distracting me. Or if I come from holidays, again, I have to pay more attention because I have to remember where everything is and and my colleagues are bothering me or, or, or whatever. Would that be something that you contemplate as an alternative interpretation of this? Yep, that's. Uh, I, I think that could definitely be going on. Um, in that case, it would be similar to fatigue. And you, so you should see kind of similar behavior with fatigue in that like now, like you said, say I come back from a vacation and everyone wants to see my pictures from my trip or I'm working in a different department and I have now all these other things I have to think about like, who am I supposed to ask for a consultation? Where am I supposed to be? Things like that. So I do think that that there could be both of these pieces there where it's affecting habit and then also adding on these other drains on your attention. So then just to be clear, up to this point, the findings are consistent with habits, but not exclusively consistent with habits. Maybe the, the exclusivity is going to start now. Uh, yes, I think that's right. So what is the third prediction and the third fact? So the third prediction uh, is where we get to the, the importance of heterogeneity here. So now the first prediction was that uh, drains on attention should lower compliance. Um, and the, what we're going to look at now is who, who are these drains on attention going to affect? So you can think about a bunch of different models of heterogeneity and the responsiveness, where some people are just going to be more responsive to shocks than others. This model of automatic cue-based habits makes a really specific prediction that the people who are going to respond to fatigue are going to be the people who are uh, washing more out of this attentive channel, because fatigue is like a tax on the attentive channel. Uh, so the people who are low compliers, who are washing more deliberately, less out of habit, are going to be are going to fatigue more in the automatic cue-based habit model. The alternative model, you have said that there are many alternative models, but the basic alternative model that you are, you know, like using throughout as a horse race, if you want, this one is in which if we assume that the cost of effort is quadratic, then it is the ones who are engaging the higher level of the activity that have the highest marginal cost of effort. So in some sense, the prediction for those will be the opposite. That is, the ones with the highest level of compliance will be the ones who are more affected by fatigue rather than less affected. Is that, you know, like, I, I, I understand that you want to, you know, like, hedge your answer in the sense of, of course, that's not the only one, but at least in that one, which is the most basic one, the prediction will go the other way. Yep, that's right. So if all the differences come from, say, people just feel like hand washing is more important or less important, or they have different costs of washing, then that's right. You should see the opposite prediction. Again, is that something that you find? So I do find evidence consistent with automatic cue-based habits. So these low compliers who wash their hands less on average um, also fatigue more over the course of the shift. So they fatigue at a rate um, almost twice as much as the highest compliers. So you are thinking of these non-compliers as being, in some sense, inherently different people. You compute them or find who they are in one part of the data, then you bring them to that part of the data. And there is where you do the heterogeneity analysis in seeing how the slopes of the relation between compliance and fatigue 
differs across these groups. But one thing that I was wondering is that you observe people develop these habits as they join the organization. That is when somebody arrives to a hospital, you observe how at the beginning they don't comply so much and slowly they acquire the habit. Their level of compliance uh, increases. One thing that potentially you could do is study the same person in periods in which they have low compliance because they have just arrived and therefore they have not developed the habit with themselves in the periods with high compliance and high habit. That is, you know, something, I mean, it, it, it would be trickier to do in that you cannot use one part of the data and so on, but that would be maybe a, an even finer way to, to study this. Yeah, I actually have looked at that in the data. And the interesting piece is that the differences between individuals are really large um, and they're pretty persistent. The differences within people, you can still see, uh, for example, the fatigue effect does decline as people increase compliance over, say, their first year in the data. But those effects are much smaller than these cross, uh, cross-person comparisons. So the variation that you have there is less rich and to do this type of heterogeneity. That's right. So just to emphasize, this third prediction's last fact was the one that was introducing the uniqueness of this type of model. What about prediction four and fact four? What are they? So prediction four is looking instead at the heterogeneity in shocks to habit. So again, if we think about this as like a dual system model, the people who should respond to shocks to habit are the ones who rely more on their habit to wash and use less um, of this attention channel. So in my model, those are going to be the higher compliers. And so we should expect those higher compliers to respond more to um, shocks to habit. And like you mentioned before, there's a bit of a confound here if these shocks to habit are also paired with uh, distractions, because those distractions should, uh, as according to the last prediction, they should affect the lower compliers. So you can see sort of an ambiguous effect if you have both a combination of distractions and these habit disruptions. But the prediction is that the habit disruption should affect more the these high habit, high complier types. Is this something that you find? Uh, yes. So I find that the in, in one of the shocks, so taking time off work, the effects are about the same for low and high compliers. So they both uh, drop in compliance about the same amount. And so that's consistent with this returns from a long vacation being both a, a shock to habit and also a distraction, but differ quite substantially from the previous previous findings on fatigue, where the low types were something like 50% more responsive than the highest types. In comparing the responses to moving a physical location, so these float days where people switch departments, um, I find that the high compliers fatigue um, at least as much as the low compliers. Um, The differences there are large, but because the, uh, so the high compliers lower compliance as they change locations about 40% more than the low compliers. But these effects are only marginally significant because now I'm looking at these pretty rare events. So I can't say too much about the difference there. But it's at least not true that the that the low compliers respond to these habit shocks much more. So I have two questions at this point about the way that you were discussing uh, your model or your way to think about you know, habits in the context of this type of behavior. The first one is, where do the cues come here? They are not so apparent to me. They're not explicitly in the model, but I would like a reminder of what role they are playing, at least in the interpretation of 
the results? Sure. So that's a great question. I think it's an open question in the literature. What are cues? What are the contexts when we start thinking about these context or cue dependent behaviors? Um, and there's not really an answer in the literature, but one, one thing that's often discussed is physical cues. So uh, again, we talked about this walking into a patient room. If you see the dispenser is right to the left where it always is, every time you walk there, you reach out and automatically do it. So in that case, these rooms play a candidate it as triggering as the cues because a particular say room layout or different rooms might have different features that cause you to automatically wash your hands. Um, so that's the, the type of cue that I'm thinking of here. And that's consistent with these cross department effects that we talked about in the habit disruptions, that as you move to a different department, they may have a different room layout. And therefore you're not you're not responding in the same habitual way to what looks like a different physical environment and potentially different physical cues. So let me see whether I understood it. The model is a general model, but if you now impose on this model of habits that they only take place in response to a cue, which is not explicitly in the model, but you interpret it in this way, then the empirical application implies that you should observe these habits taking place within location, but not across location, because the within location are the ones that provide the cues that make the model work, but the across locations do not provide these cues. So it is a bit in the model in the habit formation function. So I have this particular similarity function in that you could think of habits as building in a location specific way. So that's the way I have it in the model. And then how much habits sort of spill over to other locations is governed by this similarity function, which you could think of as how similar are these rooms. So if you if you think about room-specific habits, if all the rooms in the, in the department look the same, then your habits could be um, transported pretty easily across the rooms within a department. Um, and it's possible that, say, for rooms in a different department, they look a lot different. They have very different layouts. And then maybe the habits transfer less. So there's this kind of similarity function that's meant to sort of capture these features of the physical environment in um, determining the similarity of cues. My second question was in terms of what makes some habits already exist and others not. You know, I can see how, well, you have a habit in a room, you move to a different room, that habit is not going to help you. But you were discussing that the across individual differences were really high, at least much higher than the within individual differences. So that implies that somehow some individuals must have the ability or the willingness to develop these habits more than others. What is it in the model that makes the habits appear or disappear? Or at least what is your interpretation of what causes the habits to exist uh, to start with? Like the cues are like, a, if you want a necessary condition, but maybe they're not a sufficient condition. Yeah, so there's a couple of things that could be going on here. And I think this would be a really interesting area to dig into more is kind of what, what is it about these habits that make some people able to develop them and some people not. So what I can say within the model, you could think about different sources of heterogeneity driving these habits. So the first is just that people could say like hand-washing more or less or care more about it. It's easier for them to do. And that could end up driving uh, differences in habit as um, you kind of care more about it, you do it more, and then you have a higher habit level. So you will benefit from these automaticity effects later on. The other thing that could just be coming from is differences in your work structure or job design. 
So if you're, say, someone who's working in a department where you are, um, all the rooms have the exact same layout, your habits could be more easily transportable. It could be more easy for you to build habits that go across rooms um, and for you to keep up these habits. So in that sense, there could be differences across people who work in different areas. Another source could just be sort of random shocks and that you get a good realization where even with someone who has the same habit, the same propensity to build a habit, by chance you end up washing your hands more and that's going to kind of start you on a path where you're going to end up with a higher habit than a person who had uh, worse shocks. So there's a lot of different ways in which people could differ. I don't, I can't say too much about it with the data. Looking across the people at who are these high types and who are these low types, what I do find is that the people who are high types tend to have more patient interactions. So they work longer shifts. Uh, they visit patients more over the course of their shift. And so it might be something about these features of the job that are causing them to be able to build better habits or to be able to maintain better habits that don't decay as much between, say, times that they visit patients compared to the lower types. But that's uh, pretty speculative. But you have some evidence in the paper, which you call Fact 5, about at least descriptively uh, how do these habits emerge? Can you describe what, what that is? Yeah. So in Fact 5, what I do is I limit the data to a group of people who enter the data late. So these are people who um, enter, who I assume are to, like new hires and kind of, I can observe their first interactions at the hospital. And then what I do is I look within, say, an individual room pair um, at rooms that end up that you end up ultimately building some experience in. So I limit this to, let's say, 100 opportunities. So a room that you're eventually going to visit, um, uh, you're going to have 100 opportunities in. What happens to your compliance over the course of those first 100 opportunities? And what I find is that compliance increases quite substantially, um, especially over these first, say, 10, 20 opportunities, where you, it looks like room-specific habits are being formed. You don't know how these rooms are, however. Imagine, I mean, the, the, the data set is obviously very good, but imagine an ideal data set in which you could tell that some of these rooms have, as you have described, the dispenser on the left and others the dispenser on the right. Would, if you thought that that was a cue, would you expect spillovers across rooms in terms of developing a habit in one of them, the way that you were describing your model, partially at least translates into behavior in other rooms? Yeah, I would love to have that data. I think that would be great if I could say that, you know, if you could standardize the cues across all of these rooms, that you should be able to see habits being more transported across settings um, and potentially people building better habits because of that. So I, I would love to do that in future work. I think that would be really interesting. So in terms of uh, future work, I was also wondering how to interpret the evidence here and also what else it is that we would like. So, you know, e economists are like typically interested in identifying causal effects. This is an obsession. In my opinion, it is typically a good obsession, but of course it doesn't fit every single question that we are interested in. You know, it, it's not gonna apply to every type of setting. The approach that you follow here is, as we were discussing, develop a model, derive what kind of patterns in the data we should observe if compliance is the result of this model. And one of the reasons that I think that your strategy seems to make sense here is that habits are both endogenous and 
uh, unobservable. So it will be difficult to generate habits exogenously. And anyway, we are probably not interested in exogenously generated habits, um, but instead on how we can get individuals to generate them themselves. So I was wondering, imagine that you have the perfect data set or the perfect setting. You can run a field experiment. You can do whatever you want. There is no like ethical compliance board. What is it that you would like to do to show more conclusively that habits are triggered by cues that you can not show conclusively in this paper, if there is anything at all? Yeah, so I guess there's kind of two things that come to mind. The first thing that I would love to do is to be able to just go in and change cues and see how that affects behavior. So for example, one prediction of this model is that if you moved the dispensers or you changed the locations of or changed the layouts of the rooms, um, that's going to affect these people who have habits. And it's not going to affect the people who, who don't have habits or it's going to affect them less. And so uh, I try to do that with these, say, switching departments, evidence in the in the paper, but a really clean way of doing this where I could just isolate, say, what I think is a cue um, and show that that changes behavior. I think that would be really interesting. And then the second thing is building on that. If I could go into a hospital and say standardize all the layouts of the rooms or even only allocate people to the same rooms all the time. So you only work in say the same eight rooms um, every shift and then you just build up a lot of experience in those rooms. Um, I would love to see how that changes compliance. Um, I would expect it to increase compliance just by like standardizing the layouts or even standardizing your own work in, uh, in the same types of rooms and then see what spillovers that has to other domains. So like we talked about in the beginning, that should not only increase compliance, but I think the key thing that matters um, here for organizations is that if these habits are automatic, then that lowers the amount of cognitive resources you have to allocate to hand washing, and that frees up these resources to look at, to spend on other tasks. So you could actually, you could have other performance measures. You should see improvements in other measures as you simultaneously see people um, improving on hand hygiene compliance. Thank you, Alex, for coming to the podcast. Thank you so much. My guest today has been Alex Welsio. My name is Jordi Blanes Vidal, and this is the Visible Hand podcast. Please visit our website, thevisiblehand.uk, for links to the other papers that we discussed, introductory music and logo by Aitana Blanesiso, episode produced by Anderson Tan. 